Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Hear now the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of God. Well, since it's Christmas, I thought I should let you know that I used to be a huge pro wrestling fan. That's a true story. And uh, when I grew up, I used to love to watch all of the pro wrestlers on TV. Uh, I was a huge fan of Sting, the Million Dollar Man, and the Four Horsemen. And I used to love watching this show. In fact, me and my friends uh, had this trampoline that was in a pit, and we used to go and play on that pit and pretend pretend that we were the wrestlers wrestling with one another. Uh, I still remember doing the stinger splash on folks whenever uh, we were on that trampoline. It was a great time. And uh, so uh, we were huge fans of, uh, of pro wrestling. I can't tell you how sad I was whenever I discovered that it was actually fake. So fast forward like one year, uh, when I'm in my junior year of college, and uh, it was more than that, but uh, I'm in my junior year of college, right? And so um, it's at this time that I'm I'm serving as associate youth pastor of a church, and I make friends with this guy in my youth group, he's in junior high, and he's struggling with math, and said, hey, could you help me with my math homework? I said, absolutely, I'd love to help you, Um, I'll come on by uh, tomorrow, and and we'll do that. So uh, show up to his door, knock on the door. It's a large door, uh, not as large as what I find behind the door. His dad opens up, and he reaches out for my hand. Uh, now, this is like the biggest human being I've ever seen in my life, right? He's only six foot three, but his arms are like cannons, and his hands, uh, he went to shake my hand, and I went to shake his, and I, I got really confused because I was like, I don't know how to participate. Like, your hand is too big. I was like, do I use two hands to, you know, shake your hand? And um, looked at his face, and I look up, and I said, my goodness, he bears a striking resemblance to Ted DiBiase, the million-dollar man. 
I said, it couldn't be. And, and then his uh, son runs down, Brett DiBiase, right? Starting to put things together. And he says, oh, hey, this is my dad. I said, wait a minute, is your, is your dad a pro wrestler? And he said, yeah, yeah, he's a pro wrestler. Uh, in fact, um, his buddy was there and he said, hey, tell him how you broke your bed. And he said, well, just last week, Sting was over and he did this finger splash on me and broke my bed. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is amazing, right? And it was at that moment, I, I felt completely confused. Because I'm sitting there thinking to myself as I'm looking at this man, am I dreaming? Is this a real experience? What in the world is a guy like that doing in a place like this in southern Mississippi, right? Never expected to see that guy there. I mean, he's got to be somewhere else, somewhere important. Why is he here? And it was almost so striking that I couldn't believe that I was looking at what I was looking at. Well, this morning what we're going to find is, is that Gabriel shows up and meets Mary. And, and, and he's about to tell her about the birth of Jesus. And what's striking about this is, he seems to be in like the last place you would expect to see an angel from heaven or the mother of the Son of God. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. We actually are transitioning out of our Amazing True Story of Jesus series in Mark, and we're jumping into Luke for the Christmas cast series, where we're going through the various individuals that surround the birth nativity of Jesus. We want to look at each one and see what kind of lessons we can learn. This morning, of course, we are looking at Gabriel and Mary. Now, you have to acknowledge and recognize where we find ourselves in history as we come to this story in Luke. See, each gospel tells a little portion of the story of Jesus. Uh, We get the story of Jesus from different places in the Scripture. So uh, we know that Mark skips over the birth of Jesus, right? And then Matthew and Luke both give us uh, certain details and some different details about how that birth of Jesus came about. So as we jump in at Luke, what we find is, is that for 400 years, God has been silent. So from the time of the last prophet Malachi, when he heard his prophecies, to the time of Luke, as we see Gabriel entering the scene, Israel has not received a word from God. They have been dead silent. Uh, They don't know if God is speaking to them anymore. But what we find here this morning is the New Testament begins here in Luke uh, with this story of the birth of Jesus. And interestingly, while Mark skips the birth, Jesus Uh, basically here we find that this this story jumps straight to Jesus' birth. And so much of our Christmas story comes from this and uh, Matthew. So that's why we're going to look at Luke 1, 26-38 this morning with the angel Gabriel and Mary the mother Jesus. And what we're going to find is Gabriel speaks to Mary is that there is nothing that is impossible with God. That's our main point that we're going to be thinking about this morning. Nothing is impossible with God. Now, the first thing we find in our text this morning is we see that there is a heavenly messenger that visits obscurity. A heavenly messenger visits obscurity. So let's look again in our text in Luke chapter 1 as we begin this morning. Begin in verse 26. And this is what it says. In the sixth month of the angel, uh, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, and to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, as we look at this, 
What we find is, is that Luke uh, here uh, gives an explanation of Gabriel's announcement to Mary. And, And it is full, if you read it carefully, of all kinds of dramatic tension, combining the transcendent in these heavenly images, with this ignoble and common uh, people and place. See, Gabriel is one of the two angels that are actually named in the Bible. Now, angels are transcendent beings who are powerful, usually invisible, and they do the Lord's bidding. They, they work for him in a number of different ways. So uh, you find angels worshiping God, protecting God's people, and delivering messages from God to man. In fact, Gabriel, that we find this morning, uh, is uh, one of those messenger angels. See, uh, what we find here in Gabriel is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. We believe there are spiritual forces that are at work in your life and my life on a day-to-day basis that are actually uh, influencing all that happens. We believe in a spiritual world. And Gabriel is that messenger angel that we read about in the Bible. We, we don't read of him in many places, but we do read of him, you'll remember back in the Old Testament in Daniel 7. Uh, there he delivers a message, and here, and he's, uh, he, here we, what we find is, is Gabriel once again showing up with a message from God to man. So I guess we could think of Gabriel kind of as like heaven's version of UPS minus the brown truck. You get it? So he's delivering messages to us. So just think about this. That white space that separates your New Testament and your Old Testament represents 400 years of silence. 400 years when God has not spoken to His people. And and no word from God has been delivered to them. And in this moment, we find that Gabriel makes a couple of baby announcements to break the ice, right? So in Luke, it opens up with two baby announcements. So first, you'll remember that Gabriel had descended from the throne room of heaven to the temple in Jerusalem to break that silence with an announcement to Zechariah that his older barren wife, Elizabeth, would bear a son, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the Messiah or Christ. In fact, as we opened our text this morning, that indicator that the sixth month is actually not talking about a specific month in the year, but it's referencing the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And Gabriel stopped in Jerusalem, I believe, makes a lot of sense. But his stop here, in the text that we're looking at this morning, to greet Mary, it kind of makes you think that Gabriel either got lost, right? Like took a wrong turn, or, or had to make an unplanned emergency landing. I mean, what is he doing in all places in Nazareth? A small, insignificant Galilean village. I mean, to call it a city here is a little bit of an exaggeration. It's barely a village. Uh, We think there might have been like between 200, maybe 1,600 people in this village. It is a small place. It is insignificant. And it is in Galilee. Now, we've talked about Galilee before, right? You've got non-Jewish Samaria that separates Galilee from Israel at this point in time. And we know that uh, back then... Jews who were in Israel did not think much of those Jews who lived in uh, Israel, mostly, I mean in uh, Galilee, mostly in either, either Nazareth or Capernaum. In fact, they, they said, you know, these guys, these are not really solid folks. Uh, they're kind of backwoodsy. I mean, 
Uh, these uh, Galilean Jews are backwoodsy with a sloppy Aramaic dialect and religious practices. These are not the kind of guys that we can learn from or, or hang out with. It kind of, I think they would have had the vision of these folks being sort of like the Clampets from the Beverly Hillbillies, right? I mean, they just weren't respected. And that's why in John's gospel, we find Philip telling Nathaniel about Jesus being from Nazareth. And you'll find Nathaniel responding, really honestly, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth, right? You said Nazareth, not Jerusalem, Nazareth. But not only that, not only is it odd that we find this angel in Nazareth, we also discover that this extraordinary being is pursuing what looks to be a very ordinary woman. In fact, Mary is betrothed to a very ordinary man, and everything just looks very simple about them, unnoticeable. It's not the kind of people that you would expect an angel to meet. Now, we find that Mary, of course, is betrothed to uh, an ordinary man, Joseph. Uh, betrothals, they're kind of like our engagements. Uh, they just had more teeth. So uh, if you were betrothed to someone, uh, if you were to uh, break it off, it was considered to be a divorce. And if you were to commit, uh, inf- if you were to commit a uh, relationship with another person, it was considered to be adultery. So these were significant relational bonds. And she's in it with this man named Joseph. But you'll notice that Luke tells us twice that she's a virgin. Just to make clear we understand, she is a virgin. And this is very important for what God's about to do. See, betrothed couples, they remained virgins until the wedding. And it's, it's basically saying, look, there's nothing scandalous going on here. Very normal event. She's being faithful. She's a virgin. In fact, the only hint of anything special about them is that Joseph comes from the house of David. Now, you've heard of David before. He's Israel's greatest king. But given that he's living in the backwoods of Nazareth, slinging a hammer for a living, I'm guessing that he couldn't have felt further from ever reaping any of the benefits of God's promises to David than anywhere else. I mean, I'm sure that he wasn't sitting there thinking, that lineage is really going to work out for me. It doesn't look like it's working out for me on a day-to-day basis. His lowly estate would have felt embarrassing with such a regal lineage. But on this day, Gabriel invades Mary's obscure life with a message from God Himself declaring, you are favored and the Lord is with you. Now this is a great message. You know, as we look at this text, all we know of Mary is that she is a betrothed virgin favored by God. There's really nothing about Mary here. There's no indication that she has merited the special favor of God that began with an angelic visit and ended in birthing the eternal Son of God. There's nothing that says, this is why I chose you and not her. Nothing like that. See, God's choosing of Mary is completely God's grace. She isn't favored because of her work or her merits. Now, her status is because of who God is, not what she has done. People are often, I think, surprised to find that whenever uh, they hear the Catholic Church speak of the Immaculate Conception, that they're actually speaking of the sinlessness of Mary when she was born, not Jesus. So they believe that Mary was born sinless, and that's how they explain Mary giving birth to Jesus. And they say that, oh, this is how uh, she was able to have this 
son. Well, there are a number of cults to this day in Mexico and South America that actually worship Mary. But catch this. Mary, along with the rest of humanity up to Jesus, were all born into sin. All sinners by nature and by choice. And Mary experienced nothing less than extravagant, unexpected grace here. This is a picture of God having grace on this woman that she might become part of God's grand plan of redemptive history. Just like me and you are invited into. Now, Christian brothers and sisters, uh, you might not feel a lot like Mary this morning. But maybe you are. Maybe this morning you, are, you have put your faith in Christ and you, you have forgotten, but you are an heir to the unparalleled promises of God to his people. And yet you feel like you are living in your own personal Nazareth, right? You get where I'm going with this? You feel like, man, I know that God has promised amazing things for me, but I feel like I am stuck in Nazareth and there is no way that he's going to make good on those promises. You know, hits and echoes of successes in your life even amplify an unavoidable sense of the unmet expectations and disappointment with God seemingly not doing what He has said He will do yet, and it's not soon enough. Maybe God's promises of forgiveness and not holding your sins against you, maybe you don't believe that that could really be true today. You still feel that you are absolutely entrenched in your sin and like God is not going to ever rescue you fully from your sins. Or maybe God's promise uh, of, of that is not the biggest deal to you. Uh, maybe uh, your, your life feels like God is holding your sins against you this morning. You feel like you're stuck in Nazareth. Or maybe God promises to remove all of your enemies from you, but you have faced abuse. Or you feel like your boss is out to get you, right? Like, what about those external enemies being pushed away when I feel like I'm just surrounded by external enemies? Maybe God... You've heard him promise to heal you, but you have just gotten bad news from the doctor. And it doesn't feel like God hears your voice when you pray. See, the reception you might feel like is not as good in Nazareth as it is back in Jerusalem for ordinary people like you and me, right? See, the promises can feel so far off. And you start to wonder if God can or God will keep his promises. And I'm sure Mary was thinking much the same thing when Gabriel shows up. Out of nowhere. And he says, you are favored. Just want to remind you. And not only that, there's a plan for you. There's a plan for God's people. And maybe that's why Mary is so troubled in verses 29 to 33. She just can't believe that God would take notice of a girl like her in a place like this. And that's where we see second in verses 29 to 33. That we're told that the Son of God was born to a lowly woman. Not lowly because she's a woman, but she is lowly in a lowly place and a woman. And listen to what our text says about this response and how Gabriel responds to her response. Here's what it says in verse 29. But she, being Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now this 
word for, for troubled that describes Mary's response. It can mean confused or perplexed, or it can mean uh, afraid. Now, now maybe here she's confused as to why God would call someone as ordinary as her. Or maybe she felt the weight of her sin before this holy angel. It could also be because angels, she's fearful because angels are otherworldly creatures, unlike anything that you've seen before. See, Gabriel warns Joseph and, and Mary and Zechariah and also the shepherds not to fear. Right Now you might be wondering, why does the angel keep on saying that? Why does he keep on saying, do not fear? Well, because probably the natural impulse would be to fear an angel. Because of something about the way that they appear. But notice how Gabriel delivers a message of comfort to Mary. Repeating, once again, that she's found favor with God. I mean, I just said that, but let me say it again. Did you hear me? You found favor with God. Relax. I've got a good message. It's not a bad message. And here we find that Gabriel, as he comes to her, he has an incredible message of hope for her, unparalleled. And notice how Gabriel delivers this message of comfort to Mary uh, as she said, he says that she is favored. He says, uh, basically, you are favored. Now let me explain what that means for you, right? Here's the favor. Here's what, what's going to happen. You're going to give birth to a baby named Jesus, Now, Jesus is a good name. It's the Greek name for Joshua, that great conquering leader of Israel who led Israel into the promised land, and everywhere Joshua fought, he won. This is a good guy. This is a good story. If you got a Joshua-like guy showing up, it's hopeful. And here, we find not only is this a Joshua-like guy, verse 32 goes on to say that this son that you're going to give birth to will be great and called Son of the Most High. See, this speaks of Jesus is the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God. And, and I believe that what he has envisioned here is the image that we find in Psalm 2-7, that messianic psalm, the one where David speaks of a future coming king. And he says, this, this baby you're going to have is going to be that baby that David looked for in Psalm 2-7, Right? And so uh, that is going to be the king that he said was going to be great, an extraordinary king that God would send to deliver his people from the kings of the nation. Now, as we look at this, I want to look at Son of God just for a minute and make sure we understand what's happening here. See, when we hear Son of God, we might be think that what that means is, is that this is saying that Jesus is divine. But in reality, in the Bible, it can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. In fact, that's usually a title for kings. Kings were sons of God. They imaged the God that they served. And so to say that he's a son of a God is to say that he is going to be an earthly king or representation of his heavenly God. And what's fascinating is that this king that is brought up in the Old Testament in the history of Israel actually signals that there's something new going on about the way that God is going to interact with his people, right? So now that king, the king is here, and we have a king in Israel, what we find is, is that now God is actually going to interact with his people through a mediator, through the king. So that as, as goes the king, so go the people. If the king is faithful, then it's going to work out really good for everybody. If the king is unfaithful, it's going to be really 
not good for everybody. It's going to be bad. And so here we find that the king represented the people before God. People didn't go straight to God. The king mediated relationship before God. So again, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. So kingship in Israel signaled a shift to one person representing the many. Do you see it? The the king was a representative of the nation. Bad kings were really bad for Israel, and good kings ushered in peace. And, And catch me, that peace was both horizontal with others and vertical with God. Now you might say to yourself, that's not fair, right? Like that's my initial impulse is like, that's not fair. Uh, It's like what my kids would say if like, say my oldest son like broke a rule with dad. Uh, Say he played the the Xbox when he wasn't supposed to. And I said, Benjamin, you disobeyed me. And so because you disobeyed me, uh, all three of my sons are going to have to get disciplined for that. That's not fair. I didn't do it, right? You probably get that all the time. We just know that it doesn't seem fair in our hearts that we should be disciplined based on someone else's actions. I mean, why would God respond to me on the basis of his relationship to someone else? I I get what you mean by that. It doesn't feel fair when you get charged for someone else's sin. But don't miss this. Friends, sin has never been individualized. See, that's a deception of Satan that we think that we can sin and it just will never affect anyone. What I've found is, is that usually, most often, our sin does have corporate results. Uh, It affects others in our families and in our churches. Let me just think about a few scenarios. Um, For one, just think about the scenario of uh, sin itself and how it started, right? I mean, we've got Adam in Genesis 3 who sins against God, and as a result, every human being born after that was a sinner by nature and by choice. Have you ever thought about that? Our sin nature, like, it really is because of Adam. Like, I do stupid stuff, or I sin all the time, and I'm like, dang you, Adam. Right? I mean, I know I did that, it was my choice, but if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't do this, right? We all know that we have a sin nature because of Adam. It it was extremely corporate in its first embryonic movement. Sin was. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. And our sins still affect others, right? I mean, for instance, think about a dad who works in the financial industry, and um, he decides he's going to embezzle money, and he gets caught. Regardless if it's his family's fault, it's their problem, right? So it might not be your fault, but it is your problem. Their family's name is tarnished, right? I mean, like, maybe your name's Madoff, and it's like, man, it's going to be hard to, like, outlive that. They may be cast into a life of destitution because everything that they got through ill-gotten gain is taken away from them. The kids may have even learned some of those sinful habits about honesty and coveting from dad along the way so that it's even developed patterns of ongoing sin. And how many times have you seen children copy the sins of their parents to the T? You know, one of the strong, I think, um, tools for me and weapons for me against sin... I have lots of them. One of them is a constant reminder that I have three little boys that are watching every move I make. Both the good and the bad. They're going to be shown in the character of my children. And so it really reminds me, I'm not just living for me, I'm living for them. And my holiness is going to affect their holiness and the way that they learn to live. So sin affects the community of our family and for others, and just consider church membership. 
You know, when you join a church, uh, your life says something both about Jesus and the church community that you knit yourself with. So, so when you sin, people might associate your life and say that it says something not just about the Jesus you claim to serve, but also the brothers and sisters in Christ you are saying that you serve with. And if the sin doesn't, res- if the church doesn't respond to sin biblically, and if we as a community don't respond to it biblically, like in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and elsewhere, then others may not think that we as a, a body take seriously sin or think that we don't really practice what we preach. So it could affect our testimony. You see the way that sin can affect uh, the community? It's not just us and God. It is us before God. See, our sin has communal effects whether we like it or not. So if your king is bad, right, in Israel, and you are good, kingship will sound unfair in a bad way. It feels that way. But catch this though. Here's the good news, right? What if... The king is really good, and you're really bad. Well, see, that's, that's actually different. I like unfair that way, right? I mean, what if you were a sinner before a holy God, and desperately needy, helpless, and hopeless, left to yourself? And if you were guilty, having a king who is better than you would feel unfair too, but in the best way possible, right? And see, that's Mercy. That's mercy that has been given to us in Jesus Christ who has come to us. Mercy to forgive our sin and grace and to give us Jesus' righteousness to our account. See, that is unfair in the best possible way. I want that kind of unfair, right? And that's the gospel. But not only that, in verses 32 to 33, Gabriel also says, the Lord will give to him, this king, the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom. There will be no end. See, uh, in 2 Samuel 7.14, you'll remember that God promised King David that he would give him an eternal throne. That he would give one of his sons, he would give his son an everlasting throne. Now, God could have given David an everlasting throne in a couple of ways, right? He could have either one, just given him an endless succession of sons who were always at some point in time on the throne ruling over Israel. That's an endless throne. Or it could be that he gave him one son who would live forever, reigning eternally over an eternal kingdom of God. Could have been either, right? But here, I think that Gabriel is telling Mary something significant. It's not the former, it's the latter. He is giving an eternal king that will reign forever. And Jesus will be that king. But catch this, Mary's confused. Right? Now why is Mary confused here when when he gets this message? Well, there's this one little problem. She's supposed to have a son that's going to change the world and she's a virgin. Right? I I think we get that. And so Gabe drops one more bomb on her. Says, Mary, your son will not only be the fully human son of God, the son of God par excellence, but also he would be fully God. The son of God who is God. And so this is our last point, that the son of God was born by the power of the Holy Spirit. Son of God was born by the Holy, power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, look with me again at, at your text in verses 34 to 38, what he says. It says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, here, here's where everything, I think, starts to come together. Where we see this amazing message start to sort of gain legs and walk. You'll remember that there are a lot of miraculous births in the Bible, right? I mean, as you read through, you'll see that often a a miraculous birth takes place to sort of signal to us that something significant is happening in redemptive history, right? I mean, miraculous births, they don't just happen all the time. Uh, They are telling us that God is doing something new. So God, you'll remember, promised the patriarch Abraham that he would have a son with Sarah, his wife, who would be a blessing to the nations. God would bless him and he would bless the nations. And when he got close to about 100, Abraham started understandably getting a little antsy about whether or not God could make good on the promises that he had made to him, right? I mean, she's getting close to 99, God. Are you sure that she can have this child? And so it was at that point that Sarah got a little creative, right? She was like, all right, um, so I can't bear him a child. Maybe my servant Hagar can bear you a child. And she they went with that, and, and she had uh, with him, Hagar had with Abraham, Ishmael, right? The beginning of the Muslim faith. And so uh, that was obviously not a good decision. And, and God comes back, and he says, um, like, what are you doing? I made you a promise. Why didn't you believe me? And so he literally visits her in Genesis chapter 18. And he approaches Abraham, and he says, look, it's not... I don't need your ingenuity and your creativity to make good on my promises. Like, what about my promise did you not understand? You you do speak Hebrew, right? Whatever it was, right? You you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. That's not the problem. Yeah, not the problem. It just seemed impossible that something like that could happen. And as the Lord visits him, he says, look, go ahead and get registered at Babies R Us. Sarah's going to have a baby. One year from now, she's 99. And Sarah heard this. She was listening into the conversation. And she laughed. She laughed at God's promise. Why? Because that's crazy talk, right? When you're talking from a human perspective, that's crazy talk to say that you're 99 and you can have a baby. But when you're talking about the God of the universe who sits enthroned in heaven, that's cash money that you can bank on. When God says things that you don't believe can come true, you just remember who He is. God makes promises He will keep. There's nothing that limits Him. See, you'll remember that the Lord called Sarah out when He heard her snicker in Genesis 18.14. And God asked Abraham, why did she laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'm about to show you. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And a year later, she birthed Isaac. Now catch this. A lot of bare women have babies at significant points in the Bible. Uh, You'll remember Sarah and Ruth and Hannah and Elizabeth just previously in chapter 1. And each baby displays a new creation breaking out where God creates life in a dead womb. But don't miss what's happening here. See, God has done a lot of this 
given barren women babies uh, in the past. He still does it. But catch this. In this moment, God says, I'm doing something new. I'm doing something you've never seen before. See, God says that when a barren woman has a baby in the Bible, it's a big deal that reminds there's nothing too hard for God. But when a virgin gives birth to a baby, ex nihilo, it signals God's doing something he's never, he's never seen before, right? Like this is a new deal. He is inaugurating a new creation that is unparalleled. Now Mary saw how, how this <laughs> was going to be. Uh, it is a very uh, faint description of something that is beyond our comprehension. How a baby could be formed in a womb without a man. And Gabriel explains this profound, life-altering reality in one verse, verse 35. Here's what he says. Here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Really sounds a lot like fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. We don't have time to go there and see what God's doing. I think there's a partial fulfillment in Isaiah 7 where he tells Ahaz that he's going to have the child of a young woman who uh, would, in that context, I believe, have birthed Mahershal al-Hashbaz. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. We'll talk about it later. Uh, but, but later, what we find is, is that was a, a near fulfillment that pointed to the birth of Jesus. And here we find the ultimate fulfillment. Jesus is born of an actual virgin, the Son of God. See, the Son of God would be very God. He is actually God. Not like the kings of the past. He is of the Holy Spirit in a unique and profound way. The infinite would become an infant and the Son of God entered the cradle so that He could go to the cross for you and me. Now don't miss this. Christmas isn't as much about the greatness of Mary or angels as it is about the greatness of God and His Son Jesus. See, Christmas ought to remind us all of just that point. Christmas tells us nothing is impossible with our God. Now, let me leave you with just a few closing applications this morning. You know, first, friend, if, if you're a non-Christian, the grace of salvation is available to you today. If you will just turn from living for everything else that you're living for, your sin and the other good stuff that you're living for, anything you're living for other than Jesus, if you will turn to living for Him, putting your faith in King Jesus, He is the only one who can bring sinners back to God and He can do that for you this morning. One day you will become before God to give an account. And it will either be based on your deeds, the first man, Adam, as a sinner, will be the one that you will be lumped with, or it will be based on the work of the second Adam, King Jesus. Don't leave without talking to someone here today, if you're a non-Christian, about how you can be linked to Christ by faith and make Him your King. It changes everything. But there's a second thing that we find here by way of application. And that's what I think we all need to remember, that Christmas isn't about Mary, it's not about Gabriel, and it's not about me, first and foremost, right? I mean, we get to rejoice at the party, but the party really isn't because of us. The party is because of God and what He has done in Christ by the power of His Spirit, right? I mean, it's about the power of God on display in the person of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it ought to be a joyful time when you remember the generosity of God for sending His Son. And God's Son for taking on lowly human flesh as God. I'm not against presents, Christmas lights, eggnog, 
or even those giant snowmen that you inflate in your front yards. I'm not against those things. But let's not evaluate this morning. Let's make sure that we are generous and that we are not making Christmas ultimately about us and not Christ. Let's not evaluate God's status based on what's under the tree, right? I mean, isn't that about us and not about what Christ has done for us and the future that we have awaiting us? Let's not be angry because you didn't get the Xbox that you deserved. Let's not fight with family who's, over, who's, in, um, who's in control of the plans, right? I mean, they're making the decisions and we're not. And man, I just, I'm going to be sad and I'm going to be grumpy today. I'm going to be the grumpy elf. Because it's not the way I want and I should be in control. You know what the freeing thing about Jesus is? Christmas is actually rejoicing in the fact that none of us planned Christmas like God did that. And the good thing about God's plan for Christmas is that he gave us the best gift ever. So that every gift after that really is just a hint and an echo of the great gift that we've received in Christ. So we don't have to tie our joy to the control that we have or the presence that we receive. It is tied to God who is the great sovereign and Jesus the great king. Because Christmas is about God's plan to give vile sinners the best gift ever, his son. Because he is great and he is good. Because we've all received that best gift in Jesus. Everything else is gravy. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, okay, pastor, that seems like a very natural application for you. Every one of us are going to use this, I bet. I'm guessing. If you're a sinner like me, um, I still remember um, a, a Christmas. Yeah, Carrie, I'm going to tell the story. I hope it's okay. And um, we were with Carrie's family. And Carrie, uh, like my family, we had like all these presents. Like we gave like, we said like, hey, we're going to go in debt for a little while. We'll pay it off during the year. We're just going to have like a big Christmas. This is going to be great. And so we got all these presents. It was a big deal. And number and size was very important. And uh, when I met Carrie, they were more strategic and thoughtful with presents, which is a lot harder. I just like, like, quantity. That's easier. Like, I just gave you a bunch of stuff. It was awesome, right? Um, but they wanted to give things that meant something to you. And so I had wanted, like, this cologne. And so I said, hey, I want some cologne. That'd be great. I just like to wear cologne. Would you get me some? And she's like, yeah, I'll get you some. And so she'd been paying attention, and she thought she had what I wanted. And um, this is like a humble pastor story, being honest with you, just so you know I'm not the hero of the story. And so she gives me this box. I open it up, and it's Dracar. Now, some of you probably wear Dakar. It's a fine cologne. Uh, it's, it's a cologne that my friend's dad wore like in the 80s. And um, it still smells good, you know, for some. But I had those memories associated to it. It was not what I wanted, right? Didn't want that. Wanted something else. Like, this isn't it. And um, here I am, great pastor man. This is like 20 years ago, by the way. I'm like upset, right? And so I'm trying to just to kind of hold it in like, that's not what I wanted. Why do we waste money on that stuff? Like, right? Like, I want what I want. And it was in that moment that I'm sitting here thinking like, wow, this is like completely alien to what Christmas is about. Like my attitude in my heart. It is not grateful right now for Christ. It's not grateful for my wife who like spent all this time trying to be like very generous to me. Like this is like super self-seeking. Now, y'all are going to have those experiences this Christmas. I guarantee you. And what I want you to do in those moments is just be reminded of what Christ has done for you and be grateful and gracious as God has been so generous. But there's a third thing last way that we can apply this. Christian, Christmas means that there's no promise that God makes that he cannot and will not keep. There's no promise that God has made you that he cannot and will not keep. And I know that you can find yourself in ugly places and hard times and you can start to question whether or not God really can make good on all of those glorious promises that he has made for you, that he uh, will not ultimately heal you because you've been hurting and you've been sick for so long. You don't believe that it's coming, right? The, The real second advent is not coming. Jesus isn't coming again. Start to tell yourself that. Start to feel that like, you know, maybe, maybe uh, all of this debt that I have, just it'll never end. And like, this is the best life gets and it never gets better. 
Friends, I want you to know that Advent means coming. That's what the word means. And the first Advent speaks of the birth of Jesus. And we live right now in what Malachi referred to as the second Advent, as we await for Jesus to come and rescue us finally and to make good on all of the promises that he's made concerning his people. He is going to ultimately remove sin from us, both from the inside and from the outside. We will have a new creation, a creation free from the fall, where you're not worried about, like, man, is my house going to fall on my head? We're going to have new bodies free from sickness. We're going to have eternal life where we never die and the people that we love never die and leave us. And we will live in the very presence of God. Like that's coming. So many people get discouraged by what they don't have this season. Reminded by all the deficiencies of their lives. And isn't it ironic that so many people get discouraged during this season that is meant to remind us that nothing is impossible with God. It might, it might be a tell that we are looking in all the wrong places, not just this Christmas, but all year long. See, let me tell you something. Jesus has done something better than creating a baby and a virgin. He has not just created life out of a dead, barren womb. He has actually defeated death at the cross where he lives again forever. See, that is verification of the promise that he will keep all of his promises. We have a living king who was raised from the dead and seen by a host of witnesses to declare that everything that God said he's going to do, he can do and he will and he has. That's the hope that we have. Let's fight for joy this season knowing that God never writes checks with his mouth that he can't cash. No matter how much or how little we have this season, this is the basement, not the ceiling of our future and our identity. And Jesus is coming back. He's coming back and God will keep every one of his promises for you and me and wipe away every one of those tears that we shed while we were contemplating whether or not God actually could. Don't give up on God. Pray boldly. As Paul says, God is able to do far more abundantly than what we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. That is for you. That is for me. Let's pray.